Hey, Prime members, you can listen to That Spooky early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone with three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today, using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. Welcome to That Spooky. I'm Johnny. And I'm Tyler. And this is a weekly podcast that once looked at a young Vincent Price and said, Vivi, have you ever thought about horror movies? Yeah. And he was like, oh my God, that's so random. Absolutely. Yeah. That was actually (laughs) his exact response. He was like, so random. And it just so happened to be a Friday night and we had just bought a whole bunch of black hair dyes. So we had a makeover party and a star was born. That's it. We were basically like the Robin Anton to his... Pussycat dolls. Mm -hmm. Yes. I love that. Mm -hmm. And the mustache. That was my idea. Oh, good call. Oh, mm-hmm. I Thank love you. that. All right. Well, speaking of Friday Night Makeovers, actually, let's just talk about some Drag Race for a moment. Let's do it. Yeah, because that's how we love to kick off things. All mm-hmm. right. So we just had All Stars 5 Episode 2. They became a girl group. Yes. I was going to say they chopped up into girl groups, but that was one unified girl group performance. I mean, they were a bit of a girl droop. <laughs> Truly. Good call. Yeah. Or good name. Uh I I love that. Full of good ideas. Vincent Price's whole entire life and career and uh, a girl group. Yeah. Instead of girl group. Yeah. You're like an image consultant or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So high points, low points. Um, Let's start with the high point. My high point for me was 100% Shea Coulee's runway look. Love the skin you're in. It was fucking amazing absolutely i mean shakulay's performance for the entire episode was just a high point uh-huh but that look in particular my jaw was on the floor it was so 
good. Goddess, uh-huh. yeah. I mean, they should remake the Cats movie and just get like whoever made that outfit to make all the outfits for the cast. Yeah, totally. And they should remake it and it should be starring Shea Coulee in that outfit and they should just call it Pussy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I yeah, love that. Totally. Uh-huh. Um, so I would definitely say that that was a high point, but if I want to point out my high point, uh-huh. I would say that it was the cracking of Miss Cracker. Oh my god, the Krakening. Yeah, the Krakenation of it all. So, uh, Miss Cracker this week uh, is revealing herself to maybe be the villain of the season, which is an interesting turn, but I'm not against it, narratively speaking. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, look, I don't hate anyone on that show. Like, we've seen Cracker live. She's a barrel of laughs. But, I, I mean, she was a little bit messy in the workroom telling Angina that she basically just, like, sucked. Basically, yeah. I don't think she's so much of a villain as she is an anti-hero. Yeah, ma- yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but the whole thing is, uh, Miss Cracker just kind of undid herself throughout the episode. And I mean, it wasn't anything too serious. But basically, everyone was like, "Well, you're kind of shady." And then you could see her for the rest of like I would say past the midway point in the episode into like Untucked, she was just kind of like looking down really intensely the entire time and speaking in a monotone voice and just saying stuff like, I just wanted to come over and talk to you two because I really respect you and I want to know your opinion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just saying stuff like, don't worry, everyone, everyone's an all-star. I love you all. Like, you could just tell that she was just like, be nice, be nice. How does a human being be nice? Absolutely, because Miss Cracker went into this season on episode one being like, I'm not going to get in my head. I'm just going to have fun. And then cut to to episode two and she's nothing but in her head. Yeah, cut to that shot of her just like looking down into the corner in her big frilly tool dress. Uh from the runway just kind of like intensely staring at the floor yeah 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 so So it's a very fun narrative i'm interested to see where it goes so good high point thanks what about your low points um oh my low point oh my god i mean angina going home absolutely that was a heartbreaking because we had been looking for and i'm sure it was a low point for you too because we've been looking forward everybody has been looking forward to angina being on all stars for years Mm. and then it happened and then it's over in two episodes. Yeah, and they had a string of bad luck. They got a sore throat. And then it almost seemed like, I feel like in the moment they were like, oh, I'm reading the room and I'm just kind of stating the obvious that I screwed up the most. Uh-huh. But it almost came off like they, you know, weren't really pushing through. Right. Or no, they, like they gave up on themselves. Yeah, that, I mean, that's definitely what they presented. I don't think that they really wanted to go home. And I don't think that they really thought they deserved to go yeah. home. I think they were just uh, cracking under the pressure. Well, well that's the crackening, truly. Because uh-huh. Ms. Cracker kind of planted the seed by being like, well, honestly, you weren't in the bottom last week, but I would have written your name on the lipstick. And then you could see that it really got in Angina's head. And mm-hmm. then Cracker for the rest of the episode was like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. I, I, that was mean. It's true. <laughs> but everybody's pointing to Miss Cracker for saying that. But Blair St. Clair was the one who was saying it oh, first yeah. in episode one if we watch oh, yeah. on talk she's like but that's not the attitude of an all-star truly uh-huh yeah. so it's her fault good point all right well i would say that my low point aside from angina going home and this week i'm gonna be the tyler i'm, I'm gonna be wearing <laughs> the attitude pants of it all okay yeah you know the attitude pants uh-huh. they're like flared they're pleated on either side there's a slit down they're kind of like chaps really oh girl she knows yeah. the attitude pants the attitude pants were made for her i know uh-huh. yeah and usually you're the one with the attitude pants mm-hmm. about the challenge just being like I didn't love it but this week I'm wearing those pants you know the ones with the fringe just down the middle so you kind of have to walk bow-legged so um, I didn't really love the song 
I just got to say it. I, no. I don't want to, you know, ruminate too long on it. Uh-huh. But it, it just, it wasn't <laughs> my thing. Here's the thing. I love when a girl group challenge is like multiple songs. Uh-huh. But one drawn out song is just a little too grating. Does anybody love a nine chorus song? No. And there were high points. It was bookended by Alexis Mateo and Shea Coulee. And that was very enjoyable. So, uh-huh. you know what? I'm, I'm going to take the good where I can get it. That's but fair. if I'm going to point out a low point, that's it. She was a long song. T. All right. So that's it for Drag Race this week. We're looking forward to next week where they design rooms. Yeah. We'll see. All right. So we got some spooky gay bullshit to get into. We do. Really, it's a continuation of the ongoing conversation right now. Right. Normally, we reserve spooky gay bullshit to talk about things that are going on in the world. And that's basically exactly what we're going to be doing, because as we all know, the revolution is still going forward. It's still pushing forward. There's still a lot of change that needs to happen, but there's also a lot of um, incidences that we need to address and, yeah. and recognize. Yeah, it's ongoing. So in the last week, the public has become aware of the murder of Dominique Remy Fells, uh, who was 27 years old. They were from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They were actually found in the, I think it's the Schuylkill River. Uh, recently on June 8th, uh, they were found dismembered. Uh, there was also the death of Raya Milton, who was murdered. She was 25 years old. She lived in Liberty Township, Ohio, or just outside of it. She was actually lured into Liberty Township uh, by two adults and a 14-year-old who were trying to steal her car. Mm -hmm. Uh, And unfortunately, with Raya right now in the press, she is being dead-named left, right, and center. Her sister, Ariel, has kind of come forward and said, please refer to Raya as Raya. But unfortunately, their parents are not uh, upholding Raya's wishes. So there's that. And unfortunately, we've also seen the recent murder of Richard Brooks by police he fell asleep in a car in a well, i think a wendy's mm-hmm. and essentially the police were called on him he was intoxicated driving which you know is an offense but uh unfortunately the dui arrest didn't go as it should have and you know even though he fought back the police used excessive force they tased him and then i do believe the footage shows that they shot him while he was running away that's right yeah so that is absolute bullshit uh then we also uh have seen a number of other deaths yeah because here in canada this is something that's specific to us because a lot of the conversation is happening around the u.s right now but it's important to also recognize the things that are happening here in Canada. And these are two recent deaths at the hands of police officers. And both of them actually happened in New Brunswick. Both of them, I think, about eight days apart. So the first person was Chantel Moore. She was killed on June 4th. She was the mother of one. She had just moved from BC to Edmonston, and the police were called to her place for a wellness check. And it's also worth pointing out that she was a Indigenous person. Mm -hmm. So a wellness check ends up in her death. According to the police, she had a knife and the police officer was defending himself. But it's a part of the greater conversation of like, why aren't police able to de-escalate? Why are these situations that should be de-escalated ending in a person's death? Mm -hmm. And then on June 11th, there was Rodney Levi. He was an indigenous man, 48 years old, and he was at a local pastor's barbecue. There's conflicting reports as to whether or not he was welcome at the barbecue or not. But either way, the police were called to once again de-escalate the situation because he had two knives in his sweater and they tried to use a stun gun on him apparently it didn't work and it ended in his death he was shot 
yeah. and died a few hours later at the hospital. Yeah, I mean, it's so fucking unnecessary. And I, I mean, not to, you know, be all over the place here, but to kind of, you know, zoom back in on Dominique Fells and Raya Milton's deaths, you know, they are, this now means that there have been 14 trans people who have been uh, killed by either gunshot or other, you know, violence. Uh, and I mean, that compares to last year, there were 26 trans people, most of whom, by the way, are black trans women, like let's underline it now. Now, I know that we're referencing a lot of different cases here and, you know, hitting a few different points. But the point is, you know, after the last few weeks, there is still a lot of work to be done. There is still a lot of justice to be seeked. And there are still a lot of reasons to be vocal and to stay active. And, you know, we hope that people are following the news right now. We hope that people are staying engaged, taking care of themselves mm -hmm. and, you know, exercising self-care. But, you know, I hope that, you know, we remain to stay active and pay attention. And we'll continue to bring these things up. Uh, but, you know, we just wanted to take some time to talk about those things today. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So they're important things to talk about. Absolutely. All right. So that is kind of it for spooky gay bullshit. Aside from that, I did just want to acknowledge that we just on June 12th saw the fourth anniversary of the massacre at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. So uh, we talked about this on social media on the day. But, you know, we've got nothing but love and, you know, the deepest respects for everybody that's been affected by that. Yeah. Because so many people in the queer community at large have been affected and so many people in Orlando have been deeply affected by that night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So n nothing but love. Now, let's talk about Oopsie Poopsies for a minute. Do you have any? I do. All right. I do. All right. Take the stage. All right. So my first oopsie poopsie. Oh, we've got a few. We do. So my first oopsie poopsie actually came from Fletch. And they reached out to us on Instagram. And in my story, when I was telling the story about James Whale last week, I talked about World War One, And I talked about how he was a prisoner of Nazis. Mm -hmm. Not the case because, silly me, Nazis weren't involved in World War One. Nazis didn't really come to fruition until after World yeah. War One. So he was captive by German soldiers, but they weren't specifically Nazis. Good Good point calling that out. Uh-huh. Yeah. So thank you, Fletch, for that. Thank you. Do you have any others? Well, just one, and we both kind of addressed it. Yeah. And it, it was in regards... We had quite a few people reach yeah, out to us Yeah, actually, that's one, the actually. thing. Like, uh -huh. a lot of people reached out to us about this, being like, we are surprised that you didn't know about this. So yeah, we've got a little bit of, uh, as they would say, crow to eat over this. Exactly. Um, the Hayes Code. Uh-huh. We know what the Hayes Code is. We both went through film programs and classes. We just didn't think that that's what pre-code meant at the time. Uh -huh. I just thought that that was some fancy Hollywood term. Yeah, I was like, what's a pre-code drama? Well, I was yeah. like, oh, pre-code Hollywood. Okay, I was I was thinking of it like Pico. Right, I was thinking like pre-Morse code. I don't anyway, know what I was thinking. Yeah, well, I just anyway, thinking. I just didn't think Hayes Code, but I mean, if you don't know about the Hayes Code, please look into it. You know, it is a part of our history mm -hmm. that uh, ain't that cute. There's a lot of parts of our history that ain't that cute. It's true. But uh, yeah, interesting moment in time. And thank you to everybody that reached out about that. Yeah. I really appreciate it. I definitely learned about it in film school, but I also have to say film school ruined movies for me in a lot for of a very long time. Yeah. 
it took uh, several years of not watching movies after film school for me to enjoy movies again. Because, you know, if you touch it too close, you might get burned. Oh, yeah, the mm-hmm. candy hole logic of it all. Yeah. All right. So, any other oopsie poopsies that you want to address? That is it. That, I believe, are all the oopsie poopsies. All right. I believe, yes. Yes. Thank you so that much. is it for yeah. this week. Now, housekeeping real quick. I just want to point out movie night as of the release of this episode will be this Saturday. Mm-hmm. You can go onto the Secret Society and vote uh, sometime later this week mm-hmm. and we'll have some different movie options there and if you don't know what the movie night is it's a live stream of a public domain crappy b movie where tyler and i do our elvira style commentary in the corner exactly it's a gag yeah and uh yeah so more stuff like that more secret society business and business at large pins are back they are spooky bitch pins are back yeah so the secret society thing if you are a member and a pin is one of your perks and you haven't gotten it yet because we've been out of stock just so you know within the next week uh those will be in the mail and you can now go on to the store on that spooky.com or go to that spooky.com slash store or join the secret society at certain tiers and get yourself a spooky bitch enamel pin you sure can and let the whole world know what they're dealing with yeah all right so that's that do you have any other housekeeping do you have anything like that well you know i do see that there's a little bit of dust still there in the corner johnny i think we should get that before we keep going actually funny that you say that because there is one more thing that i want to mention just quickly anybody that follows us on instagram might notice that in the recent days we had to lock the comments on a post about richard brooks Mm -hmm. and i just want to acknowledge this uh in the next few weeks there might be some posts that you see with the comments locked and it is because those posts are getting targeted by fucking hateful people and you might not see the comments because we delete them but i'm not talking like opposing discourse like there have been some great conversations happening there was a really deep one happening on the richard brooks post that was very productive Mm -hmm. but there are also a lot of people coming on and spreading a lot of hate and responding to a lot of people's comments and just coming for a lot of spooky bitches in ways that we're not here for yeah and like while we again are open to all kinds of discourse uh if someone's going to be trolled in our account i would rather have it be us than the people who listen to this podcast and are engaged exactly yeah so we are not allowing space for no trolls there are no bridges on our social media yeah but of course Uh -uh. we invite conversation in the comments please you know especially with posts that are political and you know social and talk about the world please have conversations in there when you see locked comments it's not because we're trying to shut them down it's because that post is probably getting about you know 20 troll comments per day that you're not seeing yeah for very good reason and like hateful fucking comments full of slurs i don't understand these trolls like where hashtags baby they target hashtags that's the t and most of them are bots all right so that's it for housekeeping that's it for spooky gay bullshit Mm -hmm. do you have anything else you want to mention nope Cool. Let's get into it. I'm going first this week. Oh, you are? Okay. Yeah. Oh, you thought you were going first? I thought I was going first. Did I go first last week? No. I don't think. Oh. Oh, wait. The wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Bing! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. Okay, so, um... Matt, this is not a so. This is a period. 
Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. <laughs> Judy Justice. Only on Freebie. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, but after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Yes. Oh. Johnny Cant's over here trying to steal my sunshine. Look, sometimes when I uh -huh. write down the skeleton for the show, um, because we have a little notebook where we have all of our like show skeletons with all the different beats and segments. Uh, sometimes when I'm doing the notes real quickly before we record, I base it off the last page, and uh, yeah, I just get confuddled. Right, you switched it confuddled up. Confuddled and confuddled. That's me. <laughs> so I'm going first. Yes. Okay, perfect. Take the floor. All right, I'm going to take it. I'm going to mop it. This week, I don't know how to categorize this. Okay. It's kind of like true crime, but it's not really true crime. It's more like a true crime against humanity, if that makes oh, any sense. Oh, all right. I, I'll, t I'll take that. And th this was a person and a life and a legacy, I suppose, that I had never heard about until just this year. And I feel like it's actually a story that a lot of people haven't heard about. Because a lot of the research that I found was relatively recent. Um, so this is a name that you might start to hear more and more as people start to learn about who this person is. Mm -hmm. But this week, I am going to be talking about Willem Arondas. Oh, I've mm -hmm. never heard. Well, get into it because this is somebody worth knowing. All right, Diva. And it's particularly perfect because, as we know, it's June and it's Pride Month. Mm. So... Willem Arondis was born on August 22nd, 1894 in Narden, which is a city in North Holland in the Netherlands. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Correctly? I'm not pronouncing correctly correctly. That's all right. No, <laughs> I love that. I hope you're getting it correctly too. I do too. Now, Willem was the youngest of six children born to Hendrik Cornelius Arondis and his mother, who I believe was named Katharina Wilhelmina de Vries. Okay. Um, his father, Hendrik, was an Amsterdam fuel trader, and his mother, I believe, worked from home. Though I did read one source that says that they were both theater costume designers, but I'm fairly certain that was not the case. Wow. Uh -huh. What a difference. Very. I'd yeah. be really curious to know where they got that information, because no other source said that they were. Maybe they just had a flair for fashion I and mean, the dramatic. Maybe they did. I love that. And that might explain Willem's demeanor a little bit because Willem really wasn't like the other children. He was a kind, sensitive boy with an early inclination towards the arts. He absolutely loved to draw. He loved to paint. 
And as he got older, he fell in love with writing. This is, sounds like a cool kid. Totally. Yeah. Now, Willem spent a lot of his youth alone, and I wouldn't say that he was a loner, but he was definitely misunderstood. Mm -hmm. And that's because Willem had been sitting on a secret. Oh. A secret that he shared with the world in 1901 when he was just 17 years old. Diva. Now, Willem Arondis was gay. Mm -hmm. And to Willem, this wasn't a big deal. It was just a fact. But homo to everybody else, homosexuality really wasn't the tea. Yeah, they were like, hark, a homophile. Exactly. Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, homosexuality was actually legal in the Netherlands at this point in time. So he didn't feel a need to hide who he truly was. But that didn't necessarily um, protect him from the uh, bias of others. Of course. Uh-huh. Um, unfortunately, the legalization of homosexuality, as I said, didn't sway people's prejudice towards him, and that included his parents. Because the first people that Willem came out to were his parents, and they didn't take it very well. Willem wanted to be out and proud, while his parents wanted him to hide his homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And to put it kindly, this difference of opinion created a lot of tension between Willem and his parents. Willem was unwilling to be the person that his parents wanted him to be, and so after turning 18, Willem's parents disowned him, kicking him out of the house. Ugh. And so far as I know, Willem never made amends with his family, and quite frankly, they probably never earned it. No, well, totally. And I mean, here's the thing, like, a difference of opinion, like many people have been saying recently, is saying, I don't like, you know, cinnamon raisin crunch cereal or something like mm -hmm. that. It's not, I am invalidating your lifestyle or not even your lifestyle, your person, who you are. Your being. Yeah, exactly. that's the word. Um, so Willem was left to fend for himself after he was kicked out of the house and hardship ensued. But on the bright side, Willem was also free to be himself. And on a conscious or subconscious level, he probably also felt like he had something to prove. And I think that's a common narrative for a lot of queer people, Absolutely. especially people who were rejected by their friends or by their family. They kind of take that energy and they use it as a motivation to be like, well, you know, I'm going to I'm going to prove you wrong or, or I'm going to make something out of myself in spite of you. He's like, don't tell me not to fly. I simply gotta. <laughs> I <laughs> exactly. Know, I don't know where to take it, but you go what I mean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a positive way to sort of deal with that situation it can also be a negative way to deal with that situation i guess it depends on you as an individual absolutely and how well you can sing exactly and dance uh-huh actually no it's not just singing or dancing it's dancing because at the end of the day it is a combined <laughs> art form and to be able to do both at the same time is a skill right yeah absolutely to, to sans. it's yeah. true just ask yeah. pink yeah she does aerial acrobatics absolutely and, and you know what props to the late matthew amiot for the phrase sans. i'm not going to say that it was my own invention but i just want to give it up i mean it's a great word i've never heard it before diva no yeah i love it well this whole narrative probably helped Willem to sense because he never really lost focus of what he wanted to be and that was an artist so he pursued that full force. Now Willem did odd jobs here and there but he spent most of his time pursuing his craft and I'm not sure exactly where he lived most of the time but I, I believe he did stay within the Netherlands, even if he moved around from place to place, yeah, kind of chasing it, different employment and opportunities. It was Hollywood in his heart. Exactly. No matter where he called home. That's it. 
Now, for the better part of his life and up until the 1920s, Willem took on all kinds of different artistic gigs. It wasn't necessarily a windfall of opportunities, but it was enough to keep him going. Now, by the 1920s, Willem had developed a semi-abstract artistic style that was very reminiscent of what was happening in the prominent art world at the time mm -hmm. with like futurism, cubism, purism, that kind of very blocky, semi-abstracted sort of. Totally. You know, just like... Um... I don't even want to say just like a lot of like sound and color and force and movement. But like when I think of like futurism and that whole movement in like the early 1900s, it, it was a lot of that. It was. it was a lot of like, OK, mm -hmm. we learned how to create the forms really well. Now let's break it down. Let's view it from three angles at the same time. And let's watch like the trajectory of its movement throughout this painting. Totally. With, you know, like light trails and stuff like that. Like there was just a lot of cool shit happening at the time. Exactly. And yeah. I think he got a lot of inspiration from that. You can really kind of see it in his artistic style. Yeah, it now, was all precursors to Jackson Pollock just throwing paint at a canvas. Exactly. And being like, fucking there you go. Exactly. Yeah. Did I ever tell you that in art school, I learned that there is this theory that Jackson Pollock's fame was sort of um, manufactured by uh, the CIA? I've heard this conspiracy theory before, <laughs> yeah. in fact. I won't get too deep into it, but apparently in the 1950s, there was a lot of attention on Russia mm -hmm. for art and what was happening in the artistic world in Russia. And then the CIA was like, oh, shit. We can't. We need to bring the attention back to America. Yeah. So then they like made this whole scheme to take Jackson Pollock, this like random abstract painter, and just like boilster him into like the fame and fortune. I love. They were like <laughs> sitting in a tea room, being like abstract expressionism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How can we take them down? I'm sorry. I'm sorry about the bad accent. I mean, you should be sorry about playing the CIA as uh, a Russian person. Oh, I did that, didn't I? You did. Oh, sorry about yeah. that. I just I created a character in my head. Right. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're just like feeling your Boris and Natasha fantasy. Kind of. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, Jackson Paul. Maybe just famous because of the CIA. Who, Who knows? knows? Yeah. But getting back to Willem. So his most lucrative work came from commissioned illustrations for posters and magazines. And although he still maintained a writing practice and he, of course, continued to paint, most of his success came from illustrating. Mm -hmm. Now, in 1923, Willem got his big break when he was commissioned to work on a mural for Rotterdam's Town Hall. And although this opportunity was his big break, uh, Willem still struggled to find steady work as an artist throughout the rest of the 1920s and more or less continued to live in poverty. So he'd get a good gig and then he'd have no gigs at all. Mm -hmm. So that good gig never really amounted to very much. It's feast or famine. It's true. Now, Willem spent much of the 1930s working on publications. In 1930 and 1931, Willem published a few books of poetry, but none of it was very lucrative. In 1932, Willem met a man named John Tijesen. Mm -hmm. T-I-J-S-S-E-N. Okay. Yeah. And Willem's, this is Willem's only documented boyfriend. Now, Willem and Jan moved in together and worked to support each other. And this new relationship gave Willem more stability in his life and allowed him to take on more ambitious projects. Aww. Oh, by the way, is it Jan or Jan? Oh, yeah. J-A-N. Right. That's cool. Whatever. You're totally right. We're, 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 we're fixing it as we go. Thank Oopsie you poopsie. so much. Yeah. Now, by 1935, he started making more money off of writing. And in 1938, Willem released two novels written and illustrated by him. One of them was called The Owl's House, 
and the other was called the blossoming winter radish oh we love that <laughs> radish uh-huh the blossoming winter radish yeah i mean That's they obviously weren't published in english they were danish sure and still are i don't think they were actually ever translated mm-hmm. and I, I tried to find some copies of them on the internet to see if they're even available for purchasing i don't think they are i think they mostly just exist in like library archives but That's cool, there are though. copies out there very exclusive very like club 96 very that club mm-hmm. 96 yeah now, in 1939, Willem published a biography of the painter uh, Matthias, M-A-T-T-H-I-J-S. I think. Okay, Matthias Maris, and it's his best-known work to date, and it actually gave Willem some financial stability. Now, it's also said in several sources that Willem and Jan's relationship only lasted seven years, which means that they likely would have separated in 1939. Now, the reasoning for their breakup is undocumented, but it's possible it could have had something to do with the mounting tensions brought on by World War II. Totally fair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good excuse. Absolutely. Now, on May 10th, 1940, the Nazis, and this time it was actually the Nazis, invaded the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And up until this point, the Netherlands had maintained a neutral stance in all of the major wars of the 21st century, being World War I and World War II. Oh, great. So the Nazis were like, well, let's take advantage of that then. Exactly. Love the neutrality. Yeah, because like you said, all of this was about to change because the Nazis decided to invade. Now, apparently the Nazis invaded the Netherlands by posing as Dutch soldiers and after that they were able to outnumber the actual Dutch soldiers and seized control. Now on May 14th the Nazis bombed Rotterdam where Willem had painted that mural in 1923 Mm -hmm. and presumably the mural was destroyed in the attack as much of the city was leveled and over 900 people were killed. Fuck. Mm -hmm. Now After the bombing, the Dutch forces surrendered to the German forces to avoid any more unnecessary death. And this is where propaganda works its magic because some Dutch people began to believe that the Nazis weren't maybe as bad as people thought they were. Okay. And that's not to say that everybody thought that way, but a few people did. Of course. Mm Mm-hmm. When the Nazis took control over the Netherlands, there was no immediate um, deportations happening. There was no violence after the bombing and there were no strict curfews in place. So for many people in the Netherlands, life hadn't really changed at all. But it was all an illusion because people like Willem were quick to catch on. Mm -hmm. He's just like standing out there with his arms crossed and one eyebrow cocked. Mm-hmm. Just watching. Very that. I don't blame you. Because you remember how I said homosexual, homosexuality, homosexophones, <laughs> homosexophones. Oh yeah. my god! Yeah, <laughs> I love the smooth, smooth sound of a homosexophone. I do too, mm-hmm. baby. Yeah, oh, a baritone homosexophone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I played the homosexophone in high school band. You did. Uh-huh. Yeah. You were the homosexophone section, and you didn't true. even know it until what the age it. of twenty-one. Yeah, about that. That's fine. <laughs> I was just the faggoty tuba right yeah (laughs) yeah no smoke and screen no absolutely all right so as i was saying remember how homosexuality was legal in the netherlands yeah well it had been for almost a century up until 1940 when it was criminalized once again and this was a motion that most people wouldn't notice because most people weren't a part of the LGBTQIA2 plus community, which was definitely not referred to as the LGBTQIA2 plus community in 
1940. No, they were just like those people. Exactly. So most people simply didn't realize that this had happened or they didn't care or they were for the criminalization of homosexuality. So there are a lot of forces at play. Who knows? Mm -hmm. The thing was, though, those who did notice what was going on also knew that this was just the beginning of the Nazis' oppression, and they started to quietly assemble underground. Now, fast forward to 1942. On January 20th, 1942, Nazi leaders met in Wannsee Conference at the Wannsee Conference in Berlin. Okay. And it was during this conference that the final solution was established. Mm -hmm. Now, the final solution was, of course, to coordinate the industrial slaughter of the entire European Jewish population, which was more than 11 million people, by extermination and forced labor. Yeah. Now, their final solution wasn't just to annihilate the Jewish population. However, it was also designed to do away with the LGBTQIA2 plus community and the Romani populations in Europe. Yeah, as well as basically anybody that had any kind of perceived physical disability or, a, you know, mental disability, as they uh -huh. would have called. Actually, no, they would have called it something way worse. But basically anyone that kind of fell outside of, quote, the line. Right. You know? I think the term that they actually used was undesirables. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is really fucked up. Yeah, it's, it's a very undesirable term. Mm-hmm. Now, this final solution affected the once neutral Netherlands because they were now forced to start compiling a list of undesirables via a registration plan that required all citizens to declare their ethnicity, religion, and sexuality, and any other traits that the Nazis were looking for. Mm -hmm. And the Dutch police and the administration were more or less paid off to then supply this information to the Nazis. So it was under this umbrella of a public service. Yeah. Kind of just, you know, taking a poll. Yeah. Time to do the census. Right. Yeah. But it was so much more than that. Absolutely. Because the Nazis were basically just strategically enacting their plan of genocide. And by having this documentation of people, mm -hmm. it just made it easier for them to know who to go after. But as all of this was happening, a resistance was rising in the city of Amsterdam. So in 1942, the Dutch resistance was formed in an attempt to intervene with the Nazis' plans. And Willem was one of the first people to join the uprising, although his sexuality has more or less stricken him from the record. And we will touch on that again in a little bit. Now, after joining the resistance, Willem used his creativity to try and mobilize other artists to join the resistance. He published a magazine called, oh God, Branderish Brief. Okay. Which was meant to oppose the Nazis' order by urging other artists to help hide Jewish people from Nazis and to use their artistic skills to help forge papers after realizing that the new registration of Dutch Jews and others was not being done for their safety, as okay. it was claimed. Whoa. Now, within a year, Willem's magazine merged with another magazine, The Free Artist. And The Free Artist was a publication started by 41-year-old Dutch sculptor Jarrett van der Veen, who also happened to be an openly gay man of the Dutch resistance. Now, William and Garrett decided to join forces, and the two worked together to discreetly encourage the forgery of legal papers to protect those who the Nazis were targeting. And this underground call of action also introduced Willem and Garrett to Frida Belafonte. 
Now, Frida Belafonte was a 39-year-old cellist who was born and raised in Amsterdam to a pretty prominent family, and after meeting with Willem, she immediately began to aid in their effort of forging legal documentations. Um, it's also worth noting that Frida was a lesbian. Oh. So, snaps for Frida. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, amongst the good work that they were doing, there were also some mounting concerns, however. So they were forging these papers, but obviously this work was incredibly dangerous and they could get in a lot of trouble with the Nazis for forging these documents. Yeah. And also, if the people carrying the forged documents were found out, their lives would be in danger, which was the very thing that they were trying to avoid. Mm -hmm. So in 1943, Willem... Garrett and Frida and many other members of the Dutch resistance and many of whom were gay formed the resistance council and their goal to destroy the municipal office for population registration where the original copies of these legal documents were being housed. Get a gay agenda. Mm -hmm. I love that. So they're like, <laughs> if we can destroy these legal copies, they won't be able to compare the forged copies to the legal copies. So it will basically just make it useless like people Love can't that. do anything about it yeah. right so the resistance council quickly put their plan into action and on march 27th 1943 the group disguised themselves as dutch police officers and gained access to the municipal office for population registration and blew it up yeah uh-huh the resistance council ended up destroying 800,000 identity cards they found 600 blank ones that they could then forge, and they also found five, or sorry, 50,000 guilders, guilders, which would be put towards funding the resistance. Guilders was like the money the in currency, the Netherlands. Yeah. yeah. It's also alleged that the firefighters yeah. in Amsterdam purposely delayed their arrival to extinguish the flames because uh, they wanted to let it burn a little bit. They were like, fuck this Nazi bullshit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it wasn't like the Toronto like clown riots. Like the fire departments were not fighting to take it down. No, yeah, firefighter, yeah. <laughs> the fire departments had worked their shit out. They rolled point. up and they were like, barbecue anybody? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, anybody need to light a cigar? Right? Yeah. So the fire department took their sweet old time getting to the bombing site and then when they did they used an excessive amount of water to further destroy the documents oh i love it they're like we don't know oh sorry about that right we just had to put the water out that's so shady i, I love know, it but i love it now the resistant council's actions undoubtedly saved thousands of people from certain death but not necessarily their own on April 1st, Willem was arrested for the crime. Mm -hmm. Allegedly, someone had tipped the Nazis off, and Willem ended up taking full responsibility for the action to try and spare the lives of his co-conspirators. Now, Willem was tried on June 18th, 1943, and was sentenced to death. He maintained that he had been fully responsible for the bombing, but the Nazis ended up sentencing 13 other group members to death alongside Willem, and I unfortunately uh. couldn't find their names. On the morning of July 1st, Willem in shackles was driven to the dunes outside Overveen and was tied to a wooden post. A hood was put over his head and he was murdered by a firing squad at the age of 48. And before his death, Willem spoke to his lawyer and asked him to share his final words with the world. Let it be known that homosexuals are not cowards. He, of course, wasn't only referring to himself, but to the other queer people who fought alongside him in the resistance. Now, Garrett Vanderveen survived the ordeal, but on May 12th, 1944, 
he was executed near Overeen. Frida Belafonte survived the war and immigrated to the United States to start a new life, and she was actually the founding artistic director and conductor of the Orange County Philharmonic in, San, in Santa Fe. Get uh, yeah. it. Or sorry, not in Santa Fe, in Orange County. Wherever you want Duh. it to be, baby. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but she did die in Santa Fe in New Mexico in 1995. Oh, it's so, like the Newsies fantasy. That's it. Yeah. Now, as for Willem Arondis, his role in one of the most important Dutch acts of resistance was played down for many years in the Netherlands, mostly due to his sexuality. Mm-hmm. Although it's worth noting that the criminalization of homosexuality was immediately appealed by the Netherlands after the war. And the Netherlands were actually the first country to legalize same-sex marriage in 2001. Oh, look at you there. So snaps for the Netherlands. Snaps, babies. Now, despite being relatively unknown, Willem Arondis was finally recognized by the Dutch government in 1984 for his bravery by being awarded the Resistance Memorial Cross. Okay. And in 1986, he was recognized as being a righteous among the nations, which is an honorific used by the state of Israel Mm -hmm. to describe non-Jews who risked their lives during the Holocaust in order to save the lives of Jewish people. Okay. Yet. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I did not know that was a thing. I didn't either. And I think that's really, I mean, it's it's a terrible thing that it exists. Well, absolutely. But it's, it's nice that these people are being memorialized in that way. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry and about cutting you off. That's okay. And it wasn't, it's also not an uh, honor that's necessarily given to only people who died, but unfortunately, given the way World War II worked out, a lot of them did. Absolutely. But despite all of this, his homosexuality, Willem's homosexuality, and his final words were omitted completely from history books until the 1990s. Really? So it was really only until the 1990s that his full story started to be told. What the fuck? And before she died, Belafonte had even gone on the record to say that a heterosexual man who she doesn't name was credited for leading the group and the bombing for years, when in fact it was Willem Arondis. And so with that, let it be known that homosexuals are not cowards. And, and if you come across any textbook from back in the day uh-huh. that cites a straight man as running that revolution, you can whip out uh, the thickest pen you have uh-huh. and write Willem's name in there. Right. Correct that shit. Diva. Uh-huh. Um, I'd just like to thank my sources. Thank you to Hornet.com for their article, Homosexuals Are Not Cowards, How Openly Gay Artist Willem Arondis Fought the Nazis by R.S. Benedict, which was published on June 4th, 2020. So very fresh. Mm-hmm. Also, thank you to OZY.com. I'm not sure if that's Aussie.com or not. For their article, Willem Arondis, The Openly Gay Anti-Fascist Resistance Fighter by Jack Doyle, which was published on August 6, 2014. Thank you to Things You Should Know's video on YouTube that was published in 2018 about Willem. Also, thank you to QueerPortraits.com for their entry on Willem. Thank you to GLReview.org for Willem, Arondis, and Me by Brian Failer, May 6, 2020. Thank you to Dozo Meta mage mm-hmm wait 
do some damage.com. <laughs> oh, oh, I love that. Oh, you did some damage there. Oh, how poetic. Uh-huh. Uh, thank you to do some damage.com for their article, <laughs> New Heroes by Derek Farrell. So fancy. From July 4th, 2019. And also, thank you to BBC.com for their article, Auschwitz, How Death Camps Became Center of Nazi Holocaust by are you unknown sh- author. Are you but, sure that it's not Bebe Say? I mean, I'm not. Okay. I'm really not. And that was published on January 23rd, 2020. Also, thank you to worldqueerhistory.org for their entry on Willem Arondis. And might I also add, let it be known that LGBTQIA2 plus people are not cowards. T. Thank mm-hmm. you, Tyler. Yeah. All right. Well, I did not know about Willem or any of that. Thank right? you for sharing that story this yeah. week. Yeah. You're welcome. There is a movie coming out. Really? Um, I, I mean, it's already doing the festival circuit or I mean, it's not because there's no festivals happening, but it's called Willem. It's an English film. And I guess it's supposed to be available widely in 2021. So, oh, you know, Willem the Drag Queen is going to be pissed, right? Yeah, it's not going to be like the they same didn't way, even though. call, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's cool. It's actually, uh, I think it's very fitting that you did a queer story this week, uh-huh. and uh, I'm doing a queer story this week. Right. So we just have like a Pride Stravaganza. It must be Pride, yeah, because I've actually hinted at this in recent weeks i didn't even hint i kind of came out and said it at the end of last episode and this is why it's important to Mm. listen to Mm. the end of the episode yeah like to the very end of the episode because we throw shit in there up until the very last minute that's it you think we're reading off a piece of paper no baby yeah Mm -mm. it's like free jazz over here actually no I I do have papers in front of me. I have 10 pages of notes because this week I am going to be talking about the life, the unsolved death and the legacy of Marsha P. Johnson. Mm -hmm. Iconic. Absolutely. And that is Marsha, pay it no mind, Johnson, if you're nasty. So uh, quick primer and then we're going to just go to the very beginning of Marsha's life and start working our way forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, Marsha was a prominent figure in the queer liberation movement in, in just queer history in general, uh, along with a number of queer people, notably Stormy Delavari, Delavari, sorry uh, if I'm mispronouncing it, Uh, but Marsha was one of the first people to fight back at the Stonewall Riots in 1969. Uh, They were, like I said, a founding member of the Gay Liberation Front. They co-founded STAR. Their activism really just sees no bounds. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it all started when they were born on August 24th, 1945, in a Elizabeth, New Jersey. Oh, she's a Leo like Willem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Marsha was a transgender woman. So, when they were born, they did have a different name. I, I'm not going to acknowledge it. It is out there, but it's just not really the most respectful thing to do to be dead naming a trans person. I, I'm just going to point that out because, you know, to those of you who aren't acquainted with the etiquette, you know, like we're all on different journeys of learning, you know, the terminology. Mm-hmm. But essentially, it's really damaging to refer to a trans person by the name that they were given at birth you know now that may not be for every trans person i can't speak for everybody but just like by like the rule of thumb should be that you know whatever name 
this trans individual is telling you their name is, that is the name you call them by. Mm -hmm. Just with point blank period with anyone in life, really. But especially in these situations, because trans people are vulnerable in the respect that when they, you know, pass on or if something happens to them, sometimes quite often, actually, what happens is that their dead name or the name that, you know, they have stepped away from in embracing their identity and, you know, actually taking on their name, uh, they get referred to by that dead name. Mm -hmm. And it's disrespectful. Definitely. Yeah. And sometimes it even happens when you're referring to somebody's past. Absolutely. And, and I mean, that's the thing. So, you know, we just, uh, while we're trying to be historically accurate, there are some, you know, things like Marsh's dead name that I'm just not going to acknowledge. But basically, they were born to Malcolm Michaels. That was their father. And their mother was named Alberta Claiborne. Now, their father uh, was an assembly line worker at the General Motors uh, factory in Linden, New Jersey. Their mother was a housekeeper. And Marsha was actually the fifth of nine children. Whoa. Oh, yeah, babies. so it was quite a big family. Now, from a young age, Marsha began playing with gender. Family members uh, can remember back, I think as far back as the age of five, that Marsha was starting to express themselves by wearing dresses and things like that. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, because of, you know, the aggression from boys at school and just other children, Marsha wasn't, uh, they didn't feel comfortable expressing that side of themselves. Yeah. So they had to tamp that down and play straight. Right. So to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then unfortunately, and trigger warning, we are going to talk about sexual assault a little bit in this. Uh, at the age of 13, Marsha was sexually assaulted by a boy at school. Um, soon after this, uh, like this was very unfortunate because at the time, Marsha was also just kind of coming into their own and they realized at this time they identified as gay. So they were starting to explore their sexuality and they essentially very quickly realized that it wasn't safe being queer in their kind of town and situation. So they essentially just went asexual until the end of high school, which is a very common experience for a lot of queer people. Yeah, you just tamp it and damp it and damp it. You just put it over there, you lock it away, and you'll deal with it later. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, around the age of 18 in 1963, once Marsha graduated from high school from Thomas A. Edison High School in Elizabeth, New Jersey, Marsha packed up a bag of clothes, took $15 and moved to New York City. Mm -hmm. I don't fucking blame them no. whatsoever. No. Now, once in New York, Marsha started uh, alternating from their dead name to their persona uh, or like their, you know, kind of new image that they were building because they were doing drag at the time and things like that. Right. Uh, they referred to themselves as Black Marsha. And at first, Marsha became waiting tables around the community that they lived in in Greenwich Village in New York, which is, as many of us know, kind of a huge queer hub in new york city kind of like the gay village absolutely yeah yeah and around this time marcia began dabbling in uh, survival sex work for money she often got arrested uh basically the waiting job didn't last for too long and you know soon enough marcia became very well known in the trans sex worker community and just the queer community at large in new york mm -hmm. uh, she often hung out around times square you know she was just out and about and met people all the time 
kind. Sure. And she was a very welcoming presence. You know, Marsha loved to talk to people. So, you know, a lot of people began to know her shortly after coming to New York City. And like I was saying, around this time, Marsha began to perform in drag. So soon, Marsha began to be known less as Black Marsha and took on the name Marsha P. Johnson. Now, the Johnson was for the Howard Johnson restaurant on 42nd Street. And the P, like I was saying before, was for pay it no mind. Which I love. Uh, yeah. And that was kind of Marsha's mantra in a way. Uh-huh. She really just believed in, you know, not paying that foolishness any mind and keeping along her way. I love that in a way. It almost reminds me, like, I've heard you know RuPaul talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we all have our opinions about RuPaul. But they've always brought up this point of, like, the Pollyanna character, like, in the hero's journey. Right. And Pollyanna's always seen as this character that just, uh, you know, doesn't see the darkness or, you know, the negativity in life because it almost seems like they're too stupid or, you know, they're not willing to see it. But, you know, people always say, and like RuPaul has always said, that the Pollyanna character is somebody who understands the darkness and has walked through it and understands the dark night of the soul and is able to choose to see the light. Right. And Marsha was that kind of energy. They understood the shit that was out there, but they they presented uh, joy in right. a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I do want to pause here and just unpack some things because in video clips of Marsha and interviews and different things like that, she does identify herself in different ways. Uh, by and large, I'm referring to her in this conversation as a transgender woman because that is the terminology that we have today. But at the time that Marsha was you know, alive and coming into her identity, that word was not so prevalent. So in different instances, Marsha refers to themselves as gay. They refer to themselves as a transvestite. They also refer to themselves as a drag queen. Right. Um, and usually it's in reference to their trans identity or their queer identity. Um, But like I was saying, you know, a lot of people didn't really understand this. And that isn't to say, you know, like trans people can be drag queens Mm -hmm. and trans people can be hetero or they can be gay. You know, like all of those things can exist. But I just kind of want to point that out because I'm going to say transgender. They refer to themselves as different things. And I just don't want anyone to get it twisted because in some recollections of her life, they just say drag queen. Right. Yeah. Or they just say transvestite, which is a different thing. Right. Because like you said, the language has just evolved so much since. And a lot of it is thanks to Marsha P. Johnson. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, if anybody's out there and doesn't know the terminology, that's okay. Like, here's my understanding of it. A transvestite is somebody who doesn't identify as the gender that they weren't born, but they like to dabble in the essentially in the drag of it, in the clothes of it is usually this has to do with some sort of sexual gratification. Mm -hmm. Um, Right, like think of Frankenfurter from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, but that isn't to say, though, that, you know, transgender people haven't identified as transvestites in the past. But, you know, just by and large, that's kind of how people define it now. Um, outside of that, you know, transgender essentially refers to anybody who doesn't feel that the, you know, gender that they were born into is actually their gender. Right. So they're transitioning. And I mean, there's a lot more nuance to that conversation, but just to kind of, you know, underline these things. Because we as queer people sometimes think everybody understands, but I also don't want to alienate our straight listeners who are learning with us. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so... 
Marsha, being a queer person, being a trans woman, came up against a lot of bullshit in her life in New York at the time. And despite all of this, she was known for her generosity. Another nickname that she had among the queer community was St. Martha because she was just known for giving her last dollar to anybody. And her herself being a homeless person who was doing survival sex work, you know, like that is quite a generous thing. Mm -hmm. Now, Marsha was also known throughout the Greenwich Village community for her fashion sense because Marsha fucking played with all the colors in the crayon box. Yeah. So she was known for wearing plastic, brightly colored heels. She wore these sparkling robes. She caught attention everywhere she went. She loved costume jewelry. She would wear these big bleach blonde wigs. And, you know, herself being, you know, like a black person, it wasn't necessarily what you were seeing a lot of at the time. Right. You know, like Lil' Kim hadn't normalized. I mean, many people <laughs> did it before Kim. Lil' Kim, I'm just saying. But you, you know what I mean? Yeah. People were they like, oh, that's touchstone. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. definitely. Mm-hmm. And then so they would essentially wear these big, bold wigs and then they would usually layer on like head pieces that would incorporate fruit or flowers and things like yes. that. She was her own work of art. Uh huh. But regardless of like all the color that Marsha brought to the world around her with, you know, her fashion sense and her head pieces, the world was always trying to fucking suck the color out of Marsha's life and people like Marsha's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I was saying before, in 1960, she officially became homeless and she had numerous runs in with the police and this was just not a good scene to be having run-ins with the police as a queer person especially a trans person at the time Uh Um, now I will say there were a lot of queer people in New York around this time because in 1950 the city of New York had downgraded sodomy from a felony to a misdemeanor so it, it was basically in the rule book, it, it wasn't as heinous. So they saw a bit of a queer migration at the time and a bit of a coming out of local queers, but it still wasn't safe to be anything but straight. Right. It was like the safest unsafe place to be. Yeah. Well, they were like, well, legally you can kind of fuck, but everything outside of that about your existence is going to be illegal. Mm -hmm. So, and and, I mean, they were able to make things like same sex dancing prohibited. Basically gay people weren't allowed in bars, nor was it legal for gay bars or queer bars to operate in any way, shape or form. Just, they wouldn't be given liquor licenses. Right. If this was known, Mm -hmm. it was also just illegal to wear clothes that weren't ascribed to your gender, uh, by, you know society and all that kind of bullshit basically it was considered sexual deviant or deviancy by law so you had to be wearing at least three garments of your of quote your gender or you could be arrested and you know people have told stories of you know cops dunking you know trans women's heads in mop buckets and things like that like it's really fucked up Mm -hmm. and the thing is even with all of this happening and with queer bars not being allowed to operate they still did operate but it was because a lot of them at the time were run and bankrolled by the mob who usually had an in with the police so they were able to exist But the thing is, you know, certain people would have certain ends with certain police officers or certain precincts. So these queer bars were not safe from being constantly raided by police. So just there, while there was a lot of queerness and a lot of bars and stuff like that, you know, we will talk about the Stonewall in a second. Like just while it seemed open, none of it was. And there was always the risk of the police just coming in and arresting you for being who you are. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot 
lot of that stuff is, you know, that I just talked about applies to people that are, you know, living their life or, you know, trying to go out and, you know, find some nightlife and find some community. Imagine being a black trans sex worker who gets arrested by these police who have it out for queer people. Right. Yeah. It's not fucking good. So basically, Marsha is in New York, you know, doing what she can to survive. And the world is very fucking rocky. And this brings us to the Stonewall riots, where things kind of pop off. Now, Stonewall, this all started on June 28th of 1969. Uh, the Stonewall in the bar itself was a gay men's bar mm-hmm. for quite some time since its inception, up until just before 1969, when they started allowing transgender people to come in uh and with this marcia started attending the stonewall with some of her you know friends in the queer community now on the night of june 28th 1969 it was business as usual they were doing their thing when i I guess this is also business like usual the cops did a raid Mm -hmm. now they began arresting people and what happens next is up for debate a little bit some people say that marcia p johnson threw the first brick or shot glass at the bar which started off the riots which you know lasted for six days but according to marcia in some interviews she actually didn't arrive to the stonewall until after shit was popping off that night so what a lot of people are now coming to understand and finally talk about is that a lesbian who i I named before stormy de lavery um basically was the catalyst for this or people believe that stormy was okay so it is believed that the uprising began when as witnesses say a quote butch lesbian who was believed to be Stormy sorry Stormy Stormy I've seen some different it's S-T-O-R-M and then E with an accent over it right yeah I feel like when I've heard her name mentioned it was Stormy but I'm not sure Okay. Well, someone may be able to shine a little bit of light on that. But essentially, uh, during the arrests at the Stonewall on the night of June 28th, 1969, they were arresting 13 people in total that night. And according to people who were watching, because there was like a crowd of onlookers who had been at the bar, uh, one of the, quote, butch lesbians who was being taken away in handcuffs started fighting the police officers. So there was already a little bit of an issue getting them into the cuffs. And then basically when they got into to the cuffs they started complaining that they were too tight which witnesses confirm like their wrists were bleeding they were way ah. too fucking tight for it to be remotely humane uh, not that handcuffing somebody is that humane to begin with right. but basically uh, they were handcuffed it was too tight they complained the cop hit them with a nightstick and then this caused you know a, a laceration to their head and basically there was a crowd of people watching and this person who people believe to be stormy looked out at the crowd and just said why don't you guys do something just locked eyes with them and basically uh, some people say that the crowd just started reacting in that moment other people say that basically stormy was then pushed into the cop car and then started to fight back and that's what started it but what we do know is that on the night of june 28th 1969 people at the stonewall inn had enough Mm -hmm. and they fought back and basically the uprising lasted for six days now, some people conflate Marsha with, you know, the first bit of action being taken that night because there was a very memorable moment from the first night of the riots when Marsha climbed a lamppost and hurled something large through a cop car windshield. 
diva, yeah. but uh, <laughs> nobody knows exactly what that is. Now, like I said, the riots lasted for six days. Essentially, queer people, you should actually all look into this. Like, Stonewall's super interesting. I know we've had some requests to cover it on the show, and we probably should at yeah. some point. Um, but no one died at Stonewall. Derek, Barry. Oh, sorry. my God, yeah. Um, there is this iconic interview. It's like a round table, a bunch of drag race queens talking about Stonewall. And Derek Barry makes this offhand comment that people died. And then I think it was Willem yeah. that was like, Derek, no one died at Stonewall. It's real world comedy. It is beautiful. Like uh, you couldn't write uh. a sketch better than that. But basically, uh, the queer people were able to kind of triangulate uh, like through the different streets and block the cops in and just cause a ruckus. Like it, it was quite a time. I also, I don't mean to reduce the Stonewall riots to calling it a ruckus in the time. But right. You, you get what it I mean. It was a movement. Yeah. But yeah. you know what? I do think it's kind of poetic and beautiful that there was like a triangle formation that they were able to form with the streets to block the cops in, you yes. know, given the history of, you know, the triangle with queer people through the Holocaust T. Mm-hmm. So ultimately Stonewall after the six day riots led to a much more assertive movement toward queer rights. The first pride parade uh, was a one year memorial parade for the Stonewall riots. That's right. And uh, you know what? I'm here saying queer rights, but at the time, a lot of people were just saying gay rights. And this is where Marsha's impact further comes into play. Aside from being a key player at the Stonewall riots, in the years following, Marsha continued to work with the Gay Liberation Front, which was a radical organization that started in the wake of Stonewall. They were into, you know, making change by any means possible. Right. Now, by 1970, Marcia and Sylvia Rivera, who was a fellow trans woman who was very present on the night of the Stonewall riots, mm-hmm. um, started STAR, which was the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries. It was a queer advocacy organization uh, with a focus on helping disenfranchised and struggling trans people. So essentially, it originally operated in a parked trailer that the two of them were able to acquire. And then once uh, things developed uh, over time, they were able to organize and run it out of a tenement at 213 East 2nd Street. But basically, with this organization that Marsha and Sylvia started up in the wake of the Stonewall riots, uh, they worked to support trans people who were homeless by clothing them, housing them, and giving them food. So basically just helping them survive. Uh And to fund this, uh, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera continued to do sex work. Wow. Yeah. So like just really fucking doing everything they can to uplift their community. And Marsha and Sylvia as a duo remained to be outspoken advocates for liberation um, and basically asking gay liberation to take a more intersectional approach, not to leave behind, you know, their trans siblings and only Mm -hmm. focus on gay centric issues like, you know, marriage equality and things like that. Mm -hmm. And essentially, Marsha continued on as a fixture in Greenwich Village and the New York queer community. She was seen as an advocate and as a performer, you know, after Stonewall, she joined the Hot Peaches Review and was known very much for her singing. Yeah, that was in 1972. Hot Peaches? Yeah, Hot Peaches, baby. Yeah, and there are some great videos of her singing out there. Like, she was not a technical singer, but she just fucking had fun. She'd forget the words. She would just, you know, do whatever. But she just, she was nothing but joy up there. Right. And actually, she was invited to join uh, the offshoot of the Coquettes that came 
came to yeah oh. yeah the angels of light uh, really? which was started by hibiscus after they left the coquettes uh basically in i think 1973 or 1974 marcia performed with them oh I so didn't know that. yeah so i mean marcia was very much a part of you know queer culture in that way um and queer arts i meant to say but regardless of her pivotal role in the fight for queer rights marcia and sylvia rivera's voices were also being systematically ousted by the cis gays that took helm of the gay liberation movement Mm -hmm. and this kind of brings us into our next chapter basically the gay people who were running gay liberation queer liberation that they just saw as gay liberation said that drag queens were giving the movement a bad name listen I mean, we live in a very different world where yeah. drag is celebrated. Yeah, but that's also a coded way of saying that trans people are giving the movement a bad name. And that's it, yeah. fucked. Like, everything about it's fucked up. Mm-hmm. But that is a narrative that existed for decades. Uh, so yeah. history tells us that, like, drag performers and by proxy uh, trans people were just seemed less than by who else but the white cis men of the LGBTQ community. Yeah, who were only really focused on getting like marriage equality and respectability in the eyes of their oppressors. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing. By 1973, Marsha and Sylvia basically had enough and they made a very public stand at the Pride March that year in New York. Uh, this was in, when Sylvia Rivera gave the I Want My Gay Rights Now speech. Very the, pivotal. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, some people also call it the Y'all Better Quiet Down speech. But basically, the two of them just wanted to speak at the Pride prayed that year and i mean why not like they were such prominent members in the queer community and you know like they were trans women who were helping their trans community but they also fought for gay rights right you know um but basically they were not allowed to speak sylvia kept being kept away from the mic that day and then finally they just charged the stage grabbed the mic and i'm just gonna read it i you need to listen to it in sylvia rivera's voice unfortunately i'm not able to get a clip to play on the podcast that we can legally play play uh but you you need to hear their words so i don't mean any disrespect by this but basically sylvia grabbed the mic and says y'all better quiet down i've been trying to get up here all day for your gay brothers and your gay sisters in jail have you ever been beaten up and raped and jailed now think about it they've been beaten up and raped the women have tried to fight for their sex changes or to become women they do not write women they do not write men they write star because we're trying to do something for them I've been to jail, I've been raped and beaten many times by men, heterosexual men that do not belong in the homosexual shelter. But do you do anything for me? No. You tell me to go hide my tail between my legs. I will not put up with this shit. I have been beaten. I have had my nose broken. I have been thrown in jail. I have lost my job. I have lost my apartment for gay liberation. And you all treat me this way. What the fuck is wrong with you all? Think about that. I believe in the gay power. I believe in us getting rights or I would not have been out here fighting for our rights. That's all I wanted to say to you people. Come and see me at the Star House. The people are trying to do something for all of us and not the men and women that belong to a white middle class club. And that's what all of you belong to. Revolution now. Give me a G. Give me an A, give me a Y, give me a P, give me an O, give me a W, give me an E, give me an R. Gay power. Louder, gay power. 
I mean, the conversation hasn't changed very much, has it? Absolutely not. No. And and that's the fucking thing. That's why it needs to be said. Um, and, you know, they had that moment and it echoed out. And, you know, it has, you know, over the years been cemented in the legacy. But it, it was such an important thing to be said at that time. And, you know, the two of them, regardless of how much they did for the movement and for liberation, just weren't being respected for it in their time. Mm-hmm. Um, now, with that being said, there were other people in, you know, the world that did see value in them. Uh, now, unfortunately, this is somebody who also saw a lot of value in other trans people and loved to exploit them, Andy Warhol. Right. Um, essentially, Andy Warhol actually got Martha to model for his Ladies and Gentlemen Polaroid series uh, starting in 1974. And, uh, you know, there were these like little moments of glamour for Marsha. But, uh, like, I just want to underline, like, it wasn't easy. She struggled with mental illness, and she was more or less homeless for her adult life. Um, like, it's really easy to look back at queer icons and icons in general and think that they're these glamorous figures that, you know, experienced struggle, but, you know, were greatly appreciated in their time and loved by everyone. And, you know, while Marsha was a very joyous presence in a lot of cases, that was not the case all the time. Right. Uh, Marsha had to fight to live in a lot of ways, and she also, you know, found joy in life. But, you know, she dealt with a lot of mental illness that went unchecked uh, because just at the time we weren't supporting people in the way that we should have been. Um, her first, as they would say, breakdown happened in 1970, and that was the first time Marsha was institutionalized. And there were a number of times over the next few years where Marsha did have small stays in institutions. Um you know, people even said, like, to talk to her, sometimes she would be all over the place. People would actually assume because of, you know, the primarily because of the fact that she lived on the street, was black and trans, uh, that she was on drugs. She wasn't. She was just dealing with a lot of unchecked mental illness and things right. like that. Yeah. And she would kind of ramble all over the place and things like that. But people did say that when she was doing her activism work, she was sharp as a fucking tack and just lucid and, you know, driven right because it gave her something to focus on and i think we all need that in life right we need a purpose a place to focus our attention absolutely now throughout the rest of the 70s marcia worked tirelessly you know to do what she could for the movement for liberation she continued to do sex work when she could um and finally in 1980 she was actually asked to sit in the lead car for new york city's pride parade uh which was a really fucking big deal because they owe her a lot more than that but it, uh-huh. it was a good start now that year marcia actually moved in with a friend of hers named randy wicker um he he was living with his husband or, you know, they were gay men in the 80s, so they weren't allowed to be married. So um, I'll say partner, but I hate that fucking word because it's a word that historically has been used to erase, just, yeah, erase gay queer relationships couples. or queer yeah. relationships. Um, but basically, Marsha moved in with Randy Wicker and David Combs, who was Randy Wicker's husband. And it was just one of those things where it started off as Marsha asking to stay the night and then they just fucking loved her and she was there for the next 12 years. And, you know, it was really it was really good in that way because Marsha finally had a pad to land at uh-huh. and she had some people who really gave a fuck about her and she gave a fuck about them. And she continued to do her advocacy work for the queer community. Community as we roll into the 80s and the AIDS, you know, epidemic 
right. came up. Um, she worked tirelessly with ACT UP, who is a very prominent AIDS charity. She also cared in home for David Combs, who ended up contracting HIV and then AIDS. Uh, and she was kind of like his in-home care in a lot of ways until he died in 1990. And actually, in an interview in 1992, Marsha had admitted that she had been living HIV positive for two years up at that point. Right. And that was on June 26th of 1992. Um, you know, Marsha's activism and periodic performance had continued. She was still a prominent fixture in New York. And then this news really took people back. That was June 26th. And unfortunately, a little more than a week later was the last time that Marsha was seen alive. Now, a few days after that interview, on the 4th of July of 1992, Marsha visited her family in Elizabeth, New Jersey. This was the last time they would see her. Uh, she had come by her family home and her brother had drove her to the train station and basically the la the next time that they heard from her um, or about her, it was a call from the police looking to identify her body. Uh, Marsha's body was found on July 6th of 1992 at 5.23 p.m. She was in the Hudson River and she was 46 years old. Uh, she was found in the Hudson River, floating right side up. Her head was exposed. People at the scene noticed what they described as a hole in her head. So obviously there was some sort of trauma, it seemed. Uh -huh. uh, a man who was at the scene said that she didn't look anything like how we knew her. Uh, she was exhumed from the river, and ultimately her friends uh, had a burial for her. Um, right away after the discovery and identification of her body, uh, there was a burial created at the site. Uh, I do believe it was at the Christopher Street Pier um, and essentially they people laid down bottles and flowers in the shape of her body. Um, Marsha meant a lot to the queer community and you know uh, like I said people you know didn't pay her her respects in a lot of ways in her time but you know as time was progressing and as the queer community was coalescing in other ways um, she was getting the recognition you know post 1980 when she got to you know be in the pride parade in New York right um, so people knew her and people were fucking devastated by this um, and essentially the coroner deemed her death a suicide Nobody believed this. When her family was contacted by the police, uh, they asked to see her body. The police denied it. The case ultimately was ruled a suicide and then moved past very quickly. And it, it just not a good move. So on July 11th of 1992, a rally and march organized by Marsha's friends began at Marsha's memorial at the Christopher Street Piers. Basically, people were really angry that in the days following her the discovery of her body, that there was no follow-up happening from the police and they were just so quick to move on. There's actually a lot of, not a lot, but there are videos out there of people just on the piers chanting, do your job at the police in protest. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean... Like we've said, like in past episodes, like the Dorian Corey episodes, th things even in the 90s were so contentious between cops and queer people in New York, especially trans people. I mean, like after Dorian Corey died, like I think this was episode 10, 12, somewhere in there, mm -hmm. you know, a, a body was discovered in her apartment by the person taking care of her estate. And when the police showed up to look at this body that had nothing to do with the person who discovered it because she was a trans woman, they started, you know, circling her like 
like fucking sharks. Right, exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, and this was in the same year that Marsha was killed. So, you know, there were tensions aplenty and people were pissed. Randy Wicker, um, you know, Marsha's roommate, had spoke publicly about how Marsha was worried that the mob was after her. Okay. And still, this fell on deaf ears to the police nobody was interested in talking about it on a police level anything like that and they just wanted to drop it and move past it witnesses who were at the pier on what they believe was the night that marcia was killed uh actually said that they could potentially explain things uh basically people said that on july 4th of 1992 after you know saying goodbye to her family it seems like marcia may have ended up at the piers and basically witnesses say that they saw marcia that night being harassed by some guys who were stealing from people on the piers okay. and then other uh, people said that they heard overheard at a bar actually a man say that they killed a drag queen named Marsha now unfortunately I maybe it's a mix of the two but uh, from my understanding it wasn't taken to the police and basically even if it was in any way the police just weren't having it right so that's kind of where the police wanted to leave it Right. So it's basically like the police just really didn't seem all that interested in investigating the case further because it was easier just to deem it as a suicide and carry on because she wasn't worthy of justice. Well, absolutely. And they looked at her situation and they said, oh, well, she was homeless. She was, you know, a black trans woman. Of course, she would have so many reasons to commit suicide. All the while, the people that knew her and her friends said, no, Marsha had so much to live for, actually. Right. You know, so it it just didn't really seem to add up to them. Mm -hmm. Some people wondered if maybe Marsha had a suicide pact with some people. Allegedly, uh, Sylvia Rivera kind of alluded that the two of them had, you know, discussed that someday, you know, in the past. But there wasn't really any weight to that nobody really believed that marcia killed herself then later in 1992 the police kind of i guess copped to believing the same thing because they changed the ruling on marcia's death from suicide to drowning from undetermined causes okay so i actually no that's not an agreement but basically they were just like well Here's a bone for us to throw to you. Right. An empty gesture, really. It's like, we're still not going to do anything to try and figure out what happened, but we won't uh, paint it as a suicide necessarily. Absolutely. So this has led a lot of people to try to figure out what happened. Now, like we were saying before, some people believe that maybe the mob had something to do with this. This was one of the theories. Uh, Some people believe that maybe Marsha was pushed off of the pier into the Hudson River by a member of the mob. Um, Basically, at this time, Marsha was living with Randy Wicker, who was involved with the Christopher Street Liberation Day Festival. Okay. And it was said that around the time of Marsha's death in 1992, Randy was starting to come forward with some concerns that the Christopher Street Liberation Day Festival committee had been getting, quote, infiltrated by the mob. Okay. So basically, uh, the T is that people believed that, you know, this pride organization was being infiltrated by the mob who was taking the funds to go to them, uh, not to the queer community in right. New York. This is all alleged. I'm not like I, this is why I'm just saying mob. I do not want to cause any fucking trouble. Mm-hmm. I'm just putting it out there. But basically, uh, also that kind of sounds like corporate pride today. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, like uh-huh. yeah, T. Yeah, so, like here, Colgate. You want to check? Oh yeah, no, you mean Crest. Oh, yeah, how could we crest. forget? They bring out that or they dust off that hot. 
pride hashtag every year and always get like what 10 drag queans uh-huh yeah something yeah. good like that i mean the old good drag queen. i'm glad that drag queens absolutely. are getting checks absolutely local queens, queens, queens. Checks. we love it we love it yep no you you get the corporate money honey uh-huh. suck them for all they're worth exactly all right anyway so basically uh the tea is then that people believe that you know the mob is infiltrating this christopher street liberation day festival committee siphoning the funds and you know randy wicker was about to come forward and really start talking about this and bringing it to you know everyone's consciousness in the queer community Mm -hmm. and to get back at randy wicker or to silence him allegedly people believe that maybe marcia was killed because you know in the police's eyes you know if randy wicker goes missing or is killed you know mysteriously they'll they might investigate it but if a black trans you know previously homeless woman who's been a survival sex worker goes missing you know they're probably thinking oh well the police aren't going to fucking touch this with a 10-foot pole right Yeah. yeah So basically, they're using the police apathy to their advantage. So essentially, that is one of the theories on what had happened, you know, revenge by the mob on Randy. Mm -hmm. Another idea, and this one is very possible, especially given, you know, a lot of the most recent conversations that we've been having culturally, um, is police brutality. Sure. Now, uh, it was cited in an article on medium.com by Jeffrey J. Ivanon that in 1992, the sixth precinct vice squad, uh, who were the vice squad that allegedly in investigated Marsha's death had been brought up on several misconduct uh, issues. Like basically there was just a lot of bullshit going down in the sixth precinct vice squad, allegedly around 1992, like a higher volume than usual of misconduct. Mm -hmm. And basically outside of that, it was also a very notable year for violence against queer people at the hands of law enforcement. Like especially historically 1992, to at that point was an all-time high for violence against trans people at the hand of cops. So basically people think that, you know, Marsha, especially being somebody who had been arrested a lot previously, like Marsha had said, she stopped counting after a hundred. So it, she was well known to the police. Basically people believe that maybe the police were just kind of sick of having to deal with her and just, killed her right and dumped her and covered it up allegedly potentially or confronted her it quickly escalated and it resulted in her death that's the thing yeah so i i shouldn't make it sound like it's premeditated but as we've all seen you know shit escalates and Uh they obviously don't know how to de-escalate things without killing people it seems right thanks cops um so anyway let's talk about the tea uh, there are a lot of theories about how Marsha died, but we still don't know. And law enforcement never really put forward a good effort in the years after her death. Um, and for a long time, the history books also overlooked Marsha as a key player in, you know, queer rights over mm-hmm. time. Outside of Greenwich Village, Marsha's impact on queer liberation wasn't given that much thought until the last few years recently. Um, uh, mostly over the last 10 years, I have a lot of people outside of, you know, a small circle come to know of Marsha's story. And she's starting to have her story published in more history books and things like that. Right. Um, you know, queer Historians have been archiving these stories forever, but with the internet age came the ability to amplify marginalized voices. Right. Sound familiar? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So, Marsha's story has gotten a lot of, you know, talk and press in the last few years. 
Right. And I am well aware that the hashtag is Amplify Melanated Voices. I was, you get what I mean. Right. Okay. But also, yeah, Amplify Marginalized Voices. What's wrong with that? Yeah, both. So the thing is, with all this renewed interest in Marsha, her case was actually reopened in 2012. So there is further investigation going into the circumstances surrounding Marsha P. Johnson's death. Now, her case gained even further recognition. Like Marsha, you know, her significance in queer history started to blossom, but a lot of people still didn't even know that she was, you know, potentially murdered or that there were murky circumstances surrounding, you know, her death. Right. So in 2018, this really got amplified with the Netflix documentary, The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. Now, I cannot mention this documentary without talking about the controversy around it uh-huh. because basically, as it seems, the cis white male director of that documentary uh, took a lot of research from a black trans woman uh, named Raina Gossett, who made a movie with Sasha Wurzel called Happy Birthday, Marsha. Essentially, mm-hmm. uh, there's a really great Medium article about it. I will cite it very shortly. Uh, but uh, it really seems like that documentary stole a lot of their research, allegedly, and uh, made a lot of money for this white man off of Marsha's story, uh, while the black trans people who had their work plagiarized were left in the dust. Right. And didn't the Netflix documentary kind of race the other documentary to being released? Yeah. It it ended up coming out first. Well, no. And the thing is, Happy Birthday, Marsha isn't a documentary. It is a fictionalized movie. But, you know, like a lot of the research and a lot of the work that Raina Gossett was doing, you know, around Marsha P. Johnson's life uh, was borrowed or taken. Right. Really. And I mean, also, like a big reason that a lot of people came to know Marsha's story, like outside of Drag Race, uh, was Janet Mock's book, uh, where she basically cites Raina Gossett as making her aware of Marsha P. Johnson. uh, so basically all roads lead to Rena and Rena got fucked over. Ooh. So yeah, um the documentary though, you know, you can watch it is it is on Netflix. They do highlight a really great trans activist in it uh named Victoria Cruz. She also has a really great uh bio that was done in Vanity Fair in 2017 if you just want to read that and learn about her. It's called Meet the Transgender Activist Fighting to Keep Marsha P Johnson's Legacy Alive written by Johanna Desta in October of 2017. Uh please go check that out. But basically, that documentary came out. It really signal boosted things. And then in 2019, it was announced that New York City would be putting up a monument to Marsha and Cynthia. Oh, really? In Greenwich Village. Yeah. So this is actually part of an initiative called She Built NYC, which is an initiative to place women-centric installations around the city. So this statue would actually be the first permanent public artwork to recognize trans women in the world. That's amazing. Yeah. So that was announced in 2019 to be not too far from the stone wall. Now, I just want to cap this whole thing off with a quote from Susan Stryker, who is an associate professor of gender and women's studies at the University of Arizona. Uh, They said this quote, and it was mentioned in Marsha's New York Times obituary. And I I just thought it was a really nice way to bring us to a point, which is that Marsha P. Johnson could be perceived as the most marginalized of people, black, queer, gender nonconforming, poor. You might expect a person in such a position to be fragile, brutalized, beaten down, But instead, Marsha has this joie de vivre, a capacity to find joy in a world of suffering. She channeled it into political action and did it with a kind of fierceness, grace, and whimsy with a loopy, absurdist reaction at it all, or to it all. 
Um, because now this isn't the quote anymore, but like, remember she's Marsha P. Johnson and the P stands for pay it no mind. Yes. Uh, but you know what? We have to pay mind to black trans people because the life expectancy for a black trans person or black trans woman, like I was saying is 35 years old. Mm -hmm. That means that Marsha's death, like if we want to look at it as a numbers game, isn't actually that far outside of the norm. Right. That's fucked up. Uh-huh. And I mean, look at the news. We just talked about the stories of Raya Milton and Dominique Remy Fells. They were both killed and found, you know, this past week. There are trans black women being killed and it is an epidemic and we need to do something about it. And Marsha, regardless of how much advocacy she did, she became one of those statistics by the end of her life. Right. And that is the unfortunate reality of her story. Um, and, and I apologize. I'm not trying to reduce her to a statistic or anything like that. But it, it's just so fucking upsetting. Um, now, Marsha's legacy shouldn't only be as a player at Stonewall. It shouldn't just be as a figure of yesteryear's revolution. She represents what we need to be doing right now. She was marginalized as fuck, but she never fought solely for her own interests or betterment. Mm -hmm. She had every reason to look out for her own survival and betterment, but she always approached fighting for liberation with an intersectional approach that never left her queer siblings, you know, behind. She, you know, approached queer and civil rights this way, and she was focused on the betterment of the queer community at large. And, you know, regardless of how much that community shit on her. So we all owe Marsha P. Johnson and so many other figures whose stories I wish I had the time to tell here uh, a fucking boatload of respect. Well, that's it. She is the giant whose shoulders are all standing on. You yeah. know what I mean? It's up to us to continue her work. Absolutely. So I want to say thank you to my sources, the human rights campaign available at hrc.org for the cold case of LGBTQ pioneer Marsha P. Johnson, written by Carolyn Simon in September of 2017. Thank you to the New York Times for their art or their obituary on Marsha P. Johnson, written by Sewell Chan, uh, released in 2018. Thank you to the Legacy Project for Marsha P. Johnson inductee, written by Owen Kean, date unknown, but it's available at legacyprojectchicago.org. Thank you to the Smithsonian Magazine for New York City Monument will honor transgender activists Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, written by Malin Solly uh, in June of 2019. Thank you to the, the fucked up documentary, The Death and <laughs> Life of Marsha P. Johnson by David France uh, that was put out by Netflix. Uh -huh. But you know what? If you are going to watch that documentary, which you should, you know, get Marsha's story and stuff like that, um, you should also go watch twice as much content by Rain gossip yes do yeah it. if she has a venmo if she has a patreon go give her your money diva yeah now thank you as well to medium.com for the article should netflix viewers boycott the death and life of marsha p johnson which everybody should read yes written by jeffrey p ivanon in october of 2017 thank you to usatoday.com for marsha p johnson transgender hero of the stonewall riots finally gets her due written by dalvin brown in march of 2019 thank you to leftvoice.org for against co-optation the life of marsha p johnson written by Matto Wilson in August of 2019. Thank you to Vanity Fair for Meet the Transgender Activist Fighting to Keep Marsha P. Johnson's Legacy Alive, written by Johanna Desta in October of 2017. And finally, thank you to LGBTQ Nation for the article Seeking Justice, What Happened to Trans Pioneer Marsha P. Johnson, written by Jen Coletta in October of 2017. All right. Thank you, sources. And thank you, Johnny. I actually learned some stuff today. 
I thought I was very well versed in the life and uh, legacy and history of Marsha P. Johnson, but uh, I've learned some stuff. Well, so love learning something new. I sure do. And, and that's the kind of thing about queer history is we're all constantly learning. Stormy, I did not know who that person was until literally right now. Uh, Other than the fact that like I've heard their name and I've heard her name being brought up more and more on social media, but it's very current. Well, keep talking, keep learning, keep looking this shit up. If there's anything today that I said that you don't get, please use this as a diving board to dive into a pool of queer rights education Mm because there's so much out there and there's so much that doesn't get taught to people and there's still so much that people uncover as people share their stories over the years. Exactly. Queer rights is still being solidified and like queer history, I mean, um, in so many ways. So yeah, always keep your eyes out. Um, now, Tyler. Yeah. Maybe this perfectly transitions into the next segment of the show, which is where I ask you a very hard-hitting question. Like, what did you learn today? Well, listen, I learned today yeah. to... <laughs> you just answered <laughs> listen, it. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, that is basically it. But I also learned... Pay it no mind. Yeah. Isn't that like, if you have a namaste in bed all day, uh, decal on your wall, consider replacing it with a pay it no mind decal. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Do that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I I would say that that's my lesson too this week. Pay we have the no same mind. lesson. Yeah. It's overarching. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. All right. Well, uh, now that we've talked about what we've learned today, then I can read a review, can't I? Yes, you can. Yeah, and I've got one right here, and it's from Apple Podcasts, and it's it's very nice. And it comes to us from L. Shafe. I think I pronounced that right. L-S-H-A-E-F-F-E. And uh, mm-hmm. they said, Queens of Spooky. And, of course, they gave us five stars, because I wouldn't read it if they didn't. <laughs> now, it says... Hello, friends. Gah, where do I begin? I found this podcast through Instagram while waiting at a high school football game, waiting to watch my little brother march for the first time, and thank goodness I did. Yeah, These two queens are truly the best. I was all caught up on my other murder podcasts and get excited when I found about these two beans. Their stories are some of the most well-researched I've heard in a while, as well as very open when they make mistakes and are always wanting to learn from their mistakes. I am also always excited to hear their take on Drag Race, which makes me even more excited when I watch the show because I feel like I finally have someone to talk to about the show. I think my friends are tired of me sending them hilarious Drag Race memes when they don't understand because they don't watch. This is a very welcoming podcast and I'm so glad it randomly popped up on my Insta feed one day. I don't use Apple Podcasts, I'm a Spotify gal myself, but since I'm a poor college student, I wanted to support this amazing pod as much as I can. Wow. That's so sweet. Damn. (laughs) You signed up for an Apple podcast, just to write us a review, and that is something only a diva would do. Absolutely. Diva moves right there. And by the way, if you have Drag Race memes, please send them to us. Yes. We're we, always happy to see them. We're thirsty for them. We're hungry for them. And there uh, is a yeah. whole community of spooky bitches that love, love, love Drag Race. So yeah. you're not far away from a community that will talk Drag Race with you. Absolutely. So welcome all right and if you want to be just like l shafe and you want to leave us a review you can on whatever podcast app you're listening to us on except spotify uh, yeah. they don't like reviews that's so strange spotify is so big email it to us babies uh-huh. or join apple podcasts and show us your dedication yeah we love that <laughs> yeah we'd like to see you sweat all uh-huh. right um why am i talking like the cock destroyers all of a sudden <laughs> you, i'm like oh i want to see you sweat I wrote a big review for It's us. funny because usually when we do cock destroyers uh-huh. impressions, I'm cock destroyer number two and you're cock destroyer number one. Right, yeah. For example. Um, um, 
Um, oh my god, I'm put on the spot. Um, oh my god, I'm so fucking put on the spot. I want to get I'm so fucking put on the spot. I don't know what yeah, to say. That's the thing, so the like, well, that's the thing, because uh-huh. Cock to Story number one lays it down, and then yeah. Cock to Story number two comes in with like a 30 word sentence yeah. that includes everything they said and makes it three times dirty. Yeah, she's the affirming Cock Destroyer. Absolutely. Like the first one's like, <laughs> we're going to go get some yoga to put on our tits. And the other one's like, oh, love putting yogurt all over my tits. I want to get I some chunky, gritty yoga. I don't yoga even want tits. it to be good yoga. I want it to be expired. <laughs> yeah, so like that's the tea. Oh my God. Um, so, uh, so thank you so much for reading. <laughs> leaving us a review and if you want to leave us a review we would really appreciate it but five stars five stars only baby now if you're looking for another way to support this podcast and you just got through that cock destroyers impression and you're like oh I could keep going with this mm-hmm, yeah. then you should hop over to the secret society that doesn't suck because baby let me tell you we do weekly mini episodes called spooky snacks we just did the tiger king extravaganza oh my god we also did. known as the tiger king is over party Way also over. known as a tiger king episode in a post tiger king world right yeah because it's kind of irrelevant now it's very relevant it's now. so funny it's kind of like i feel like in the last two weeks and we kind of say this on the extravaganza um people have probably been like protesting in the last few weeks and they're like why am i wearing so much animal print how did this happen to me why do i have a mullet Uh uh-huh like it's kind of like how people like went into the uh self-isolation and then everyone's baby yoda merch started to show up yeah so people were in lockdown (laughs) and then suddenly they were like oh yeah i I guess i did order a lot of baby yoda stuff yeah they're like why do i have fuck carol baskin tattooed across my back yeah it's like dude where's my car but as a society Uh so yeah you can hop on over to the secret society that doesn't suck that's patreon.com slash that spooky mini episodes we do live streams we do a whole bunch of really cool shit and there's even merch and pins and kisses that's it (laughs) and now this wouldn't be a podcast hosted by a couple of millennials if we didn't have social media honey Mm -mm. so you can follow us on instagram and twitter at that's spooky pod absolutely Uh and you can also email us at that spooky pod at gmail.com which is spelled t-h-a-t-s-s-p-o-o-k-y-p-o-d at gmail.com just like we do in our social media you can send us freaky shit that happened to you weird stories from your hometown and please send us pet photos please we love them we continue to love them uh-huh and then don't forget to follow us on our website or i mean just go check it out save it as your home screen yeah, do whatever sure. you need to do yeah, you can subscribe to the r or rss feed of our website i think you can i think so yeah. either way it's at that's spooky.com yeah. so easy to remember how could you forget absolutely and you can also go to that spooky.com slash store or you could click the store on that spooky.com or you could join the secret society to get this but whatever we're talking about the store now but pins are back yeah so they're back they're in the store they say spooky bitch and they're printed or like made with like rose gold enamel so cute it's like so pretty yeah it's like pink and it's blue and it's rose yeah and don't you want to wear a cute accessory with a swear word on it yeah isn't that cool Uh all right make your mom sad oh my god or maybe not make your mom glad yeah maybe your mom's maybe she'll be more proud of you after this who knows you know throw some spaghetti at the wall see if it sticks all right now uh that that is kind of it for this week i it guess yeah yes. episode 90 it's in the bag baby it's in the bag we're making yeah. our way to 100 we are we're standing on the edge of 100 today oh my god saved by the bell the uh, college years absolutely uh-huh. the show where i learned how to juggle from the opening credits where slater is juggling Ooh. Mm-hmm. staying mm-hmm. homesick from school watching saved by the bell the college years <laughs> 
diva. Yeah. All right. So yeah, episode 90, real cute. We will see you next week for another spooky episode. We will see those of you on the Secret Society a little bit later this weekend when we do our movie night. You'll also get more mini episodes from us and a whole bunch of other content. We do weekly postmortems. You know where to find us. You do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we live on the internet. That's it. And uh, yeah. I guess that's it. I guess we need to tie it up. We do. We have to compliment people at the end. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, look, don't act brand new. You know we compliment people at the end of every one of these shows. I mean, I know. I know. And, 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 I'm, and I'm looking at you, listener, and I'm like, wow, your ears are really clean. Really? Yeah. Clean ears? That's the, that's the name of the game? Clean ears. I Listen. Love it. It's a market beauty. It is. Yeah. It's a diva move. Yeah. It, you know what? It's the details. It's really the details that's that it. matter. And that's where beauty comes from. So, yeah. love you all. And you're... <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful ears. Yeah. Kissy kisses. And as always, if you're going to be a bitch. Be a spooky bitch. Bye. Bye. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to That Spooky early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.